Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for being here. We're going to spend the hour today talking with our colleagues at Bridge Magazine uh, about the work that we do together with them through the Detroit Journalism Cooperative. Uh, We're going to talk a little later about housing segregation in Metro Detroit, how it looks different today than it did 50 years ago, and how it does not look as different today uh, in some ways uh, that you might expect that it would. But front up front, uh, in 1967, an uprising in the city of Detroit that some classify as a riot, other people call a rebellion, began at a blind pig restaurant on the city's west side. Our work with the DJC takes a deeper look at the issues that led to the overwhelming tension in 1967, and what has changed or remained the same since that time. One of our partners is, of course, Bridge Magazine, and here to talk about his new profile of the blind pig and the very person at the center of the incident at the blind pig uh, is Bill McGraw, a reporter at Bridge Magazine. Bill, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, I was saying to you before before we came on air, you know, I, I think if you took any random 10 people in Southeast Michigan and talked to them about what happened in 1967 and asked them how it started, you probably get eight different answers. Uh, and and none of them, I think, would get to the, to the sort of level of granular detail that your story uh, this week does. Uh, you know, some people think that it was just a general economic unrest that uh, during a hot summer uh, that, that that led people to to push back. A lot of people will get to the idea of a of a blind pig uh, fight in a blind pig, uh, but here in this story, I mean, you really sort of capsulize what the tension that surrounded that summer was about and how it sort of ignited around. Uh, this one particular, uh, this one particular place, and one particular man. Exactly. Well, we're lucky because this one particular man, whose name is Bill Scott, left quite a record for us. He wrote a book. Uh, so I'll back up. His dad and his uncle, mainly his father, ran the Blind Pig. His father's name was also William Scott. And, of course, the Blind Pig is an after-hours drinking place. Yes. They were mainly African-American. And, of course, as we know, the police force was mainly white in those days. And that was one of many... Uh, clash points between the black community and the police. The police raided the blind pigs. They needed, of course, a couple of the, at that time, fairly rare black members of the force to be the decoys or the undercover guys to try and get in. So um, anyway, so Mr. Scott, uh, the father of the writer of this book, ran his blind pig, and he, was, he ran it for two or three years. It had been raided several times. It was raided the month before, and the tickets you got for being in a blind pig are just misdemeanors, so it's not a big deal. It's just generally a fine. So, But this was a way that the police force was exerting or asserting its, its power and dominance over young African Americans in the city. And that's exactly how it was seen, yeah. yes. And so uh, on July 23rd, uh, early on a Sunday morning, they raided the blind pig at 9125 12th Street in Claremont. And um, Mr. Scott was there. And then his son, Bill, who had been working as the doorman at the club, was not on duty that night, but he drove up and saw the raid. And as the raid took place, he, according to his book, egged on the crowd. Now, let me just stop for a second and talk about his book. Mm -hmm. Two years later, Bill Scott was was attending the University of Michigan, and he uh, entered a, um, a, a his 
basically a memoir at age 20, 21 years old to the Hopwood competition, the famous literary awards at U of M that 30 years earlier, Arthur Miller had won won, a, won Hopwood Award. Mm-hmm. And Bill Scott's book, uh, Writings, won an award that year. He later self-published the book in 1970. Virtually no one has read it. Uh, it's in the libraries at U of M, and you can spend up to $100 for it online if you can find it, because he didn't print very many copies. <laughs> and his book, though, is written in an extremely passionate way, and it's very detailed, and it talks about what it was like to grow up in Detroit in the 1960s as a young black man. And it talks about how he evolved from considering himself white, thinking white was the way to go. He thought that he was he should be white, and he thought of himself as white. But he talks about how he was radicalized by uh, largely his encounters with the Detroit police and also his encounters at church. He thought the people he was in church with were phonies. And so uh, that— that is his book. It's called Hurt Baby Hurt, as in Burn Baby Burn. Right. And so back to the night uh, that, uh, and we, we have this account by uh, Bill Scott, the author of the book. So uh, he talks about um, egging on the crowd, basically, and, and saying to the crowd, are you going to let these so-and-sos uh, push us around like they always do? And he got the crowd riled up. Now, remember, it's four o'clock in the morning. People had been drinking all night and having fun and whatever. And so um, uh, given what was going on in Detroit at the time, we've, you know, the DJC has spent the year exploring the issues involved, economic racism and whatever. So the crowd was pretty jacked up. And um, Scott says in his book that he went into an alley and got a bottle and went back into the crowd and threw it at a cop, a sergeant, standing in front of the door. And it missed and crashed on the pavement. And uh, they were loading people into paddy wagons. Detroit had paddy wagons in those days. Yeah. And as they drove the last of the 85 people away, more bricks and or stones and bricks and bottles um, were thrown at the police who were there guarding the um, uh, their fellow officers as they emptied the hall. And the everyone drove away. All the police drove away. And people were left on 12th Street to their own devices. And the riot, rebellion, uprising, disorder started. Yeah, yeah. And it started uh, at four in the morning and it went on for the about the next five days. Right, right. Uh, and and this, this flashpoint gets sort of buried, I guess, over time in the retelling of what happens over those next five days because, in part, what happens over those next five days is so significant, uh, both in terms of uh, the, the the property damage, uh, the loss, the, the of, loss life. of life, uh, and and then over, and what it did to the city psyche exactly over the next five decades, how it changes nearly everything that would that we come to think of as true here in in Metro Detroit. Right. Well, it's so interesting that um, you know, of course, the year earlier in August there had been a, sh- a two day disorder, um, no no deaths, no injuries, a few arrests on Kirchhoff on the east side. Uh, that could have spread, but it was at a different time of the day. There were lots of police, and they really flooded the area and took care of it. So, you know, Scott's account, of course, it's his account. Now, he was definitely there. Um, uh, among the people I interviewed for the story was his older sister, who lives in Detroit, and she was in the club working for her father, and she was arrested that night. And she saw her brother as she was being led to the paddy wagon. She didn't see what he could have or what he, he did. Bill Scott, we should add, has had um, – he moved to Ann Arbor uh, not long after the riot. He didn't want to live in Detroit anymore. He, was, he, he got a couple degrees at U of M. He won another Hopward Award. He was a very talented guy. Yeah. But he had a history – he developed a history of mental illness and substance abuse. 
The last we know, he's been living on the street in Daytona Beach, Florida. Wow. And um, with Brian Kaufman, a photographer from the Free Press who was working with us, uh, we went down in July and spent three days trying to find him. And everybody told us, including social service uh, people, that he was pretty well known down there on the streets, but he hadn't been around in months. And we know he didn't die in that county and he's not in jail. He has been in jail uh, off and on over the last 16, 17 years that he's been there. But so we don't know where he is. His family doesn't know where he is, but uh, he left this record um, and he, um, he left a son. Right. Uh, And, and, and you, in the story, you talk about how his son sort of wrestles with the, the, the fallout from, this incident uh, as a member of the next generation here in Detroit. Well, uh, Bill Scott, uh, during his years in Ann Arbor, married a woman who was a U of M student uh, about 15 years younger than him and who was a white woman. Her name is Auburn uh, Schaefer. She's very prominent in the story, and she was very helpful in doing the story. She grew up in Findlay, Ohio, in an all-white environment, but she got involved in uh, black literature and really became interested in black culture and black America as a white kid growing up in all-white Finley. So she comes to Ann Arbor and meets this black revolutionary poet from Detroit. They uh, had a fairly uh, uh, tumultuous relationship. Um, She's very open about their drug use and abuse. Um, She's totally recovered and is studying for a Ph.D. now in um, Ohio. So they had a son. They named him Mandela. He was born in 1990, right after Nelson Mandela had visited Detroit. (laughs) Mandela uh, was taken back with his mom after his mom and dad split up to live in Finley. And he grew up in a white environment with her family and cousins and whatever. And growing up, he also was very uh, helpful to the story and very frank about his evolution. Um, he, li- he lives in Chicago now. He's 25 years old. But he, he grew up really not very conscious about race, he said. Uh, he had almost no incidents. Um, you know, people knew who he was. He grew up and to be both a scholar and an athlete. He got basically a free ride to Princeton. Right, he right. was a starting defensive halfback, and he majored in sociology. But two or three years ago, visiting his white girlfriend's house in Bowling Green, Ohio, uh, he was sitting on the porch, and to make a long story short, he was pretty roughly arrested by the police for something that he didn't do. In fact, in Within a couple of days, the charges, any charges were dropped, were dropped, and the chief of police apologized. But this rattled him. Yeah. And so Mandela— And echoes uh, everything that, uh, that his father it, dealt with uh, in 1967. Exactly. And in a further echo of what his father did, uh, his father, of course, um, took all of his experiences in dealing with race and wrote a book about it. Uh, Mandela had to write, like all Princeton seniors do, a, a senior thesis— and he wrote generally about recidivism, but he spends about about almost a third or a quarter of the book, of the paper writing about his personal experience and what it meant to him. And his the bottom line is he said that he, you know he thought a lot about he he looks like an African American. He has very nicely coiffed dreadlocks, um, and uh, he said he he often thought, you know, am I my mom's white, my father's black, am I white, am I black? I just tried to be Mandela. I tried to be myself. But he says he found out in that incident that America says you're black and is going to treat you like black no matter what you want to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson.
My guest is Bill McGraw, a reporter with Bridge Magazine. Uh, we're talking about uh, his story about uh, the blind pig that's at the center of the beginning of the 1967 uprising here in Detroit. Uh, the title at uh, bridge.com, uh, bridgemi.com, is He Started the Detroit Riot, His Son Wrestles with the Carnage. Uh, you want to call and uh, join the conversation, talk about your memories of the beginning of the 1967 uprising, if you were around then, and what you thought the causes were. If you weren't around and have, like I have, heard about it in history, um, what did you think was the cause or the beginning of the 1967 uprising. Uh, also, what do you think uh, we should be thinking about uh, this year uh, coming up, 2017, the 50th anniversary uh, of that uprising um, here in the city of Detroit? Uh, what do you think we should be talking about? What should we be thinking about in terms of why that happened and uh, what has sort of unfolded in its wake since? 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. That's 313 313- Five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Bill, uh, part two of the story uh, it's divided into three parts on on Bridges website, but part two really talks about where William Scott sort of comes from, and there's some really great. Uh, I think, common history in there, not just for African-Americans uh, in the city, but f- but for all of us, uh, for everybody. Uh, the idea that uh, his family came to Detroit uh, during the Great Migration uh, and came for an auto job at Dodge, Maine. Both sides of his family, not surprisingly, came from the South in the World War One era. And um, in the post-war era, his father got a good job. He was working at Dodge, Maine, and he worked at some other Chrysler factories. And he was doing quite well, and the family owned a house on the east side. So by, you know, they were, um, you know, to coin a cliche, living the American dream in right. certain ways. Yeah. And so, um, but in the 1950s, um, as historians have pointed out, uh, is when Detroit started hemorrhaging jobs and started its long sad and slow decline, and Mr. Scott lost his job and couldn't find another one. And the family ended up losing the house and had to live in a succession of rental places. His dad, not being able to find another good job, turned to the numbers and became a numbers guy. (laughs) Which is another really familiar theme here in, in Detroit. Should we talk uh, about what that yeah, is? Yeah, no, right. What was, explain what the numbers were. Well, it's though. basically a, a lottery. <laughs> it's a lottery. It's a lottery. book lottery, right? Right. Uh, an illegal lottery. A yeah. lottery before the state lottery uh, became uh, known, became a thing. Uh, so uh, Mr. Scott was a good hustler, his, his daughter says. And he <laughs> did quite well and supported the family well. But Mr. Scott was also very political and, uh, and somewhat radical, too. And he, he also bristled under the thumb of the Detroit police. In fact, uh, his daughter told me that when Coleman Young was elected in 1973, he said, I can finally get off my knees because he had been thrown against walls. He had been called boy and worse. And so um, uh, he, um, in fact, the club, um, you know, was a, a political club. Yeah. It, it started, it didn't start it's as called, a blind pig. It's, it's not called a bar, it's called the Community League for it's called Civic Uni- Action. Civic Action, yeah. exactly. And so um, their idea was, he was all about black power, black political power. And he wanted to help 
black candidates get elected. And so they had meetings and whatever, and of course, politicians came to meet them. Detroit did have elected black politicians in those days. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in uh, not many, but they did have some. And he got he got uh, basically sick and tired of dealing with politicians. Yeah. And um, so um, the Blind Pig kind of evolved as a place where, you know, they would uh, have some beers or whatever when they would have their meetings. But even up to the point where the raid happened in uh, July of 1967, they were still doing political things. The police department took pictures of the inside after the riot ended. And you can see on a wall, there's a list of precinct delegates. And Mrs. Scott, Hazel Scott, uh-huh. Bill, the, the author Bill Scott's mother and Mr. Scott's wife, she worked for Soapy Williams, who uh-huh. was, of course, Michigan governor for about 12 years right. in that era. Yeah. And he was very popular in the black community. So this was a family that was very, I mean, you know, it was in a sense a coincidence that A, the riot happened at their front, started at their front door, and B, their son says he threw the first bottle. But before any of that happened, they were really involved in trying to help black Detroiters get a voice in running the city. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. You want to join the conversation, go to the WDET Facebook page, uh, put your comments there, or uh, go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Tom in Northwest Detroit, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. I was a four-month-old, 20-year-old at that time when, <laughs> when the riot jumped off. And I remember that, uh, that Saturday night we were riding. And when we got down to the boulevard, uh, Woodland Boulevard, all of a sudden you just heard this huge crash of glass just breaking everywhere. And, you know, your folks went to stores and what have you and took what they wanted. And, you know, the and 12th Street, 12th Street was a very viable business community. Sure. And, you know, they did more damage in terms of when they destroyed 12th Street uh, because 12th Street never reopened after that. We're, we're, we're... Yep. Tom, I think we lost you there. Uh, I wanted to hear the end of that story, too. <laughs> Tom, uh, give us a call back. We'll try to, we'll try to get back to you and, uh, and wrap that up. Uh, Matt, uh, Matt, you say you're right near the Blind Pig right now. Are you over on 12th Street? Well, it's not 12th Street Yes, anymore. I'm at 12th and Blaine. <laughs> okay, yeah, wow. Uh, I work here. Okay, very good. Um, what's um, on your mind? Um, I just had a question, um, perhaps a comment. Um, I was, my father was a police officer at that time mm-hmm. and he was down here and he was actually driving one of the tanks. Um, and he was shot at, he was shot at on his motorcycle coming home. And I was just wondering, you know, what were the police doing wrong enforcing the law? And I'm a firefighter. Mm-hmm. And I've worked with guys who had to hide under the rig to avoid gunshots while they're trying to put out dozens of fires, working 48-hour shifts. Um, we I was coming back from a fishing trip in Canada, saw it over the bridge. We always took the boulevard to Grand River home. Uh-huh. Our boat got rampaged. Took all of our rods and so, reels. So you're asking what was wrong with the police enforcing the law against the blind pig? 
Is that yes, sir? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Where it all occurred initially. Great, great question, Matt. Uh, Bill McGraw, I'll let you take first crack at uh, answering. Well, um, it was an illegal drinking uh, club, and they were violating the liquor laws, so um, they were, um, you know, open to be arrested. Uh, but the police department didn't raid um, a lot of illegal clubs in white neighborhoods, right? And um, they, they this picked, was a common this was a common thing in Detroit at that time, that, right? That Especially in the black community, hours. but not only in the black right. community. And right. there were all sorts of uh, private gambling clubs in uh, areas where police officers lived, um, where you didn't have to worry about getting busted. So the, the the research it's you know 50 years is a long time, and there's been a lot of research done by various types of experts, uh, scientific polling, interviews with people both then and over the years. And um, there, there's no doubt that, well, first of all, I think the caller was also making the point that um, police officers and firefighters were shot at during the riot. And they, and they definitely were. Yeah. I mean, two firefighters died and a police officer died yeah. among the deaths. But the, the main cause of the rebellion was people were rebelling against the way they were treated by the police. Yeah. There were yeah. economic reasons, plenty of them, but the police department in that era picked on the black community, not just in Detroit, but in a lot of uh, most big cities in right. America. Well, and in fact, uh, I mean, there were several incidents that, that happened right around that time and during uh, the riots, uh, the the incident over at the motel, um, uh, I'm going to blank on the name of it. The Algiers a, motel? At, at, the, at the Algiers, uh, where, you know, you have cops killing uh, executing, executing three young black men. three black men because they're in a hotel, presumably with some white people. Uh, I mean, the, the idea that the um, you know, I mean, and this is one of the things that we end up arguing about, I, I guess, a lot uh, in in America, and not just in reference to the riots, but th- th- this question of uh, whether criminality. Uh, or lawbreaking is the problem, or that the response to it is the problem, that the police often cause uh, the reactions that they see through their own actions to, to ostensibly enforce the law, but you know, crossing the line to brutality and other things is, is one of the things that, that accelerates those things. Right. In his book about the riot, uh, which is called The um, Violence in the Model City, the late Sidney Fine, the U of M history yeah. professor. And yeah. that is the book that if you want to know about the riot and the era uh, that surrounded the riot and the rebellion, uh, you need to read that book. It's, it's very, very available. But he writes that blind pigs in the black community grew out of the pre-World War II era when black Detroiters were not allowed in downtown clubs and hotels and bars. So they had to do their own thing. Not everybody had the money to open their own bar, so it was a more informal operation. So the whole thing was in reaction to the segregation and racism of an earlier era. Right. Uh, That was still ongoing in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Let's go to Jamal in Midtown. Jamal, welcome to Detroit Today. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Go ahead. I, uh... I, I, did, I wasn't around when uh, the 67 riots came. I came about a decade later. But what I want to say is, is coming up next year on the 50-year mm-hmm. anniversary, mm-hmm. I think one of the parallel themes or potential parallel themes from then and today is opportunity. Yes. Because when, you you know, we've got development in downtown, we've got development in midtown where I stay, and that's good. But opportunity is is really, really key to all people because opportunity will have people create things and build things or opportunity, a lack of opportunity will cause people to destroy right. and tear down. And I think that's part of what you saw then is the frustration just boil over 
from the feeling of my opportunities being taken away from me. Yeah. Well, and and Jamal, uh, a lot of people draw parallels between today and then, as you just did, in terms of what kinds of opportunities we see for the majority of the people who live here in in the city. If you go out into uh, uh, many of the city's neighborhoods, the sort of far flung areas from downtown and midtown, it looks it looks really different still, uh, the, that, that whole dynamic of opportunity. Thanks very much for the call. Go ahead, Bill McGraw. Well, you know, um, uh, speaking of opportunity, um, another aspect of that is the opportunity that you, is seen through Mandela Schaefer's eyes. Now, Mandela is the son of Bill Scott, who uh, says he threw the first bottle and started the rebellion. So Mandela is 25 years old, has a really good job with uh, Microsoft in Chicago, uh, of course, he was educated at Princeton. Uh-huh. He uh, lives on the 27th floor of a flashy new apartment building in a hip and happy neighborhood in Chicago. So he has opportunity that his father's generation could not have imagined, really. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, uh, Bill McGraw, reporter with Bridge Magazine. Thanks, as always, for being here. Thanks very much for having me. All right, uh, coming up next, we're going to talk about how housing plays a role in inequality in our region, and we'll continue this conversation about the 50th anniversary uh, of the 1967 uprising coming up in just a few months here in the city of Detroit. Stay with us on the phones as well. Tom in Northwest Detroit, we'll get back to you. Dolores in Detroit, uh, we'll get to you. Stay with us on Detroit Today.